It's great to see you. Uh, I had no idea how many people would come. And, uh, of course, we're repeating this on Sunday, so some will come then. It's uh, really nice to, uh, to have you here. It will be useful for you to see uh, how we see things uh, panning out. Um, and uh, you'll, you'll see that uh, what we're starting with uh, is, uh, in a moment, myself looking at um, uh, the key uh, passage in 1 Timothy 2. And Andrew then will help us to see from 1 Corinthians, 11, well, particularly chapter 11, but a little bit more of 1 Corinthians as well. We wanted to start with the Bible saying, you know, this is how we understand what the Bible is teaching on the key thing of, uh, of the place of women um, in, uh, in leadership in the church. We then love to stop and have some questions on, on the, as it were, on the expositions, for want of a better word, where we look at the, what we think the Bible is saying, and you may have different views, but it would be a good chance for you to ask us some questions of clarification and to talk about that. Then we'll have a break for coffee. Uh, which will be good for us to have a break. But it'll also be, I think, a good, genuine time for you to be just saying to people, hey, look, they said that. What do you think about that? So feel free to talk about that so that when we then go on to the next section, you can come back with more questions because I I often find when I go to these sort of meetings, I can't quite think clearly enough. I might have questions. If I can talk to somebody else about them, uh, then I know how I can uh, better uh, phrase them when it comes to it. So that's how we see things uh, uh, panning out. And um, uh, we should get on with it. Uh, in a moment, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, ask, I'll ask Peter Collier to pray for us in a moment. But I, I won't at the moment, Peter. I'll give you a moment to have a little think because I didn't say I was going to do that. Um, uh, but first, let me, um, uh, well, let me say to you, please have Bibles. Um, it'd be great to have them. Uh, but I am also going to put some of the Bible references up on the uh, on the screen and uh, the first one uh, Jude verse 3 which um, you can turn to but really I'll just have it up on the screen there uh, for us um, dear friends writes Jude although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints uh, uh, the reason I've started here is uh, because I want to really just bear something of my heart and say to you, I, I feel um, like, in a way, like Jude, whenever this issue is raised. I am not as godly as Jude, but I, in many ways, want to be like Jude. I want to be about the salvation we share. And that's one of the great things that I love about Fullwood. Um, the vast majority of uh, this congregation the vast majority of the congregation want to be about the great salvation we share. I want to be about proclaiming the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ. I want to be about building people up to become established in Christ. I want to be about his church growing numerically and spiritually to his glory, both here and wherever else we can influence. Um, but I feel that... Uh, we have to deal with the presenting issue that we have tonight. That's how Jude goes on. He was dealing with a different issue, but he goes on to say, look, I really, I really wanted to write you a different letter, but this is going on, and so I, I've kind of got to deal with it. And um, that's really where I'm at. I don't want this issue to become, that we're talking about tonight, the defining issue for us uh, for Christchurch forward. But it is an issue that has come to bear upon us. We just happen to be living at this time uh, of this being the debate 
uh, in the church that we're in at the moment. Um, I've grappled with whether we should have a sermon series on this issue. Uh, Maybe we should, but I've decided certainly at the moment, rather than do it that way, to do it this way. Because on Sundays I want to be about the salvation we share. Uh, I think about newcomers joining us, unbelievers or people who are new to forward. And I, I don't really want them to hear us discussing this issue and thinking that that's what we're about. Now I might be wrong on that. There is a sense in which unless you address things on a Sunday, you never address the whole congregation. Um, but I'm just bearing my heart with you this, this evening and telling you why we've done it this way. It may not be the wisest way, but that's why we've done it this way. And uh, I hope you'll see that my motives uh, are for the gospel, I'm driven by the gospel. Well, that's where my heart is. Uh, now we should pray. Um, Peter, would you mind leading us in prayer? Peter, thank you. Now, if you want to take notes or if you just want to follow along, then uh, this handout is the one, there are two handouts, the one that says at the top, Women Bishops Meeting. Uh, you'll see I've just, uh, my first little section in the introduction is a reluctant discussion, Jude 3. Um, and I move on to an important distinction before we look in a moment at 1 Timothy 2, and then I'll hand over to Andrew to look at 1 Corinthians 11. But an important distinction Again, uh, this uh, reference, you don't particularly need to turn up in your Bibles because it's going to turn up here, um, a reference that you know well. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. Very, very important um, to... Uh, set some things out tonight. Um, uh, This can be a highly emotive subject. Um, Before we look at the key texts, I want to appeal to you to hear uh, what we are saying and what we're not saying. Um, So as we look at Galatians 3, um, please hear this clearly. I believe that women are equal with men. Uh, That seems to be very clear from Galatians chapter 3. Men and women are equal before God. I do not believe that women are inferior to men in any way. Um, I don't believe that women are unable to teach. I don't believe that women are unequal with men. Now, I point this out, and you'll see this coming out uh, as, we, uh, as we look at the key texts. But um, to demonstrate the point clearly, uh, you might now like to turn to 1 Peter chapter Two and three. Again, it will come up on the screen um, in a moment. I will encourage you to turn to one uh, to two Timothy uh, to one Timothy. But for now, uh, one Peter chapter two, um, and it'd be good if I if I read from verse twenty one. Peter says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. 
When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. And so on. Uh, Now, it's the first four words in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 1 that I think are very important as a foundation before we go any further so that you know what I am not saying uh, what I, I mean I've not uh, I don't know exactly what Andrew is going to say but I know he will not be saying this as well uh, chapter 3 verse 1 first four words wives in the same way in the same way be submissive wives are instructed to be submissives to be submissive here to their husbands in the same way as what well that's why we need to go back in the same way as jesus submitted in the preceding verses so you see in chapter 2 verse 21 peter tells us that jesus is to be our supreme example as we follow in his footsteps and so as we look at the way jesus submitted in this section we will see the way wives are to submit. And that will tell us a lot of things about what we are not saying. Now, firstly, Jesus did not submit because he was inferior. Jesus submitted to men as they nailed him to a cross. You'll see that in verse 23. He was not inferior to men. So as the Bible says, wives in the same way submit... Uh, we must say it's not because wives, women are inferior in any way to the person they submit to. Secondly, Jesus' submission is not born out of inequality. Jesus submitted to his father, verse 23, but Jesus is not unequal to the father. I think we'll see this more clearly in 1 Corinthians 11, but it's important to state now. And so, as wives are to submit to their husbands, uh, it is not saying that they are not equal with men. And then the third thing is Jesus' submission is not a mark of weakness. It is not a mark of weakness. Remember Matthew chapter 26 and verse 53 tells us that Jesus had legions of angels at his disposal. As Jesus submitted to the Father and went to the cross, he did not do it out of weakness. And so when wives submit to their husbands, they don't do it because they're weak. So looking at Jesus' example, we see that Christian submission is not born out of weakness, inferiority, or inequality. Um, please, as I say what I say tonight, I, I will not be saying that. Um, and uh, if it sounds as if I'm saying that, that's, I'm, I apologise for that because I'm not attempting not to say that. And it would only just slip out as if it was something else. So as we consider the role of women in the church, we are working out a principle of equality and complementarity Uh, equality in status but diversity of roles men and women are equal before God but we have different roles to play well I think the two key texts are 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 11 Uh, let me now uh, dive into 1 Timothy chapter 2 with you and I would encourage you to turn uh, in your Bibles uh, to these verses although we'll have them on the uh, screen as well if that is uh, a bit easier for you, if you prefer that. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
Uh, page 1192 if you have a church Bible. Uh, although I'm not sure about these blue ones, whether they're the same. Is that the same number? Have you got a blue one? 1192, fantastic. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'll read from verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Uh, Paul is writing this letter so that Timothy, the, the senior elder in the church in, in, in Ephesus, will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Now, you'll see that in chapter 3, verse 14. She says, although I, I hope to come to you, so I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in, in God's household. So these instructions, the whole letter is about how the church, how, is about church order and church life. And uh, that's what's going on uh, in, uh, in, in, in our section, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. It's about church order and church life. Um, the injunction in verse 12, I think, is very, very clear uh, that a woman should not teach or have authority over a man. Uh, you can't read it any other way. But the debate over this verse is whether it's cultural. Now, those in favour of uh, women to be given positions of headship in church leadership, and we're talking about women bishops particularly tonight, uh, would point back to verses 9 and 10 and argue that today, in the church in the 21st century, we don't insist that women refrain from having braided hair or wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. And so they argue, just as verse 9 and 10 seem to be culturally bound, verses 11 to 15 are as well. So they say it's a cultural thing. No, it's very clear what he's saying, but it's cultural, and so we don't have to obey it anymore. However, uh, I want to argue tonight that verse 13 answers that objection. You see, Paul tells us why he writes as he does in verse 12 with the crucial link word in verse 13, 4. So verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. For, here's his reason, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now that's very important because that tells us that Paul's injunction in verse 12 is not culturally bound. It is something set out in creation, a creation ordinance. He goes right back to before culture. Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's why I'm saying this, he says. There is an order in creation that gives men uh, leadership and the Bible teaching role. Uh, I do not permit women to, have, to teach or have authority over a man. For Adam was formed first, uh, then Eve. Uh, then what goes on in this verse is that uh, in verse in this chapter in this section is that in verse fourteen. Now, verse 14 further explains verse 13. I'm going as slowly as I can, just so you can keep up to speed if you've never heard this argument before. Now, before I explain verse 14, um, 
Let me tell you what verse 14 is not saying. It is not saying that women are naive. Uh, It is not saying that women are naive and are far more likely to be deceived than men. And for that reason, they should not be given authority or the Bible teaching role over men. No, no, that's not what it's not saying. Now, verse 14 is an explanation of verse 13, just as verse 13 is the reason for verse 12. Uh, So uh, it is an explanation of verse 13, namely to see the order in creation. Are you with me? Verse 12, I don't permit a woman to, to have authority or to teach a man. Verse 13, for Adam was made first, then Eve. Verse 14, now I'm going to tell you a little bit more about verse 13. So, in order to understand what verse 14 is about, we've really got to go back to Genesis 2 and 3. Um, so come with me. We're, 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 we're closing in on the end of this little exposition, so it's not going to be long. But come with me to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, and we'll then go back to 1 Timothy in a moment. Now, as we come to Genesis 2 and 3, we should see exactly what 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 13 says, that Adam was formed first and then Eve. That's what we see here. Um, We see that Adam was formed first, Genesis chapter 2. And then, what does it say? Uh, God looked for somebody to help him. There wasn't a helper suitable for him, verse 18. He looked at all the animals and eventually he made Eve. So that's the first thing we see. Um, In that, this is the crucial point. In chapter 2, verse 16, we see that Adam, in being formed first, was given a command. You see it in 2.16. He said to Adam, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you'll surely die. Eve wasn't there when that was said. She had not been created at that point. Now, what's the point of all this? Um, Adam was given the word of God to teach Eve. And what's all this thing about Eve couldn't be, uh, Adam uh, couldn't be deceived, Eve could be deceived? Well, once you've got 2.16 and the order in your mind, it begins to make sense. Adam was given the word, Eve wasn't there. Now, if you're Satan... Who are you going to try and deceive? You're going to try and deceive Eve. Because what does, that, what does Satan say? Chapter 3, verse 1. Did God really say? Well, who are you going to say that to? You're going to say it to Eve, because Eve wasn't there. Did God really say? You wouldn't say it to Adam, because Adam was given the word of God by God. Do you see the point? So Eve could more easily be deceived, not because she is somebody who's naive, but because she was not given the word. Adam was. So when we go back to, in a moment, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, you'll see why he writes what he does. He writes it to make the point that Adam was always 
the one who was to teach the woman. He was given the word of God to teach the woman. So as, um, as Satan tempted the woman, Adam should have said very politely, oh, excuse me, Eve, uh, but I'll have a word with Satan. As Satan said, did God really say? He should have said, excuse me, Eve. And then he should have addressed Satan and said, yeah, God did really say. Or, no, actually, Satan, you're twisting it. God didn't really say. He said it like this. But you see the point? He should have been the teacher taking the lead because that was his role. And you see that when you look at the Genesis account. The point is this. The possibility of deception that Paul picks up in 1 Timothy 2 verse 14 is a demonstration that the word and the authoritative teaching role was given to Adam and not to Eve. And that is to underline more clearly, 1 Timothy 2 verse 13, that Adam was formed first, then Eve, as we go back here. So Paul's injunction in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12 is not cultural, but a creation ordinance. Man is to have the authoritative teaching role in the church. He, back in creation, was given the word of God to teach men, women and mixed congregations. And uh, as a sort of final remark, and then I'll hand over to Andrew, this, I think, is entirely consistent with Jesus' ministry. Uh, Remember, Jesus treated women with great dignity. He treated women equally with men, rightly so. He had men and women as friends and men and women disciples. Jesus' attitude and approach to women was revolutionary. Jesus taught and trained women. Jesus appeared to a woman first after the resurrection. Jesus was not bound by culture in any way, yet Jesus did not appoint women to positions of headship over men. He did not appoint a woman as an apostle, for example. Well, enough from me. I'll hand over to Andrew. He'll explain 1 Corinthians 11, and then we'll take some questions on 1 Timothy 2, Genesis 2 and 3, 1 Corinthians 11, and the like. Thanks, Paul. Um, It's worth uh, turning to 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, I don't have the page number in the Bibles there, but if someone could shout it out, that would be 1152. Brilliant. So we're going to be looking at um, especially 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 2 to 16. Um, But we'll be doing a little bit of looking at 1 Corinthians 14 just near the end as well. Uh, But this is uh, where we'll focus. Uh, Let me read that. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered covered, dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. 
For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. I'm uh, just going to pray again uh, that God will help us as we uh, look at uh, this another part of his words. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I do thank you again that you speak to us. And I pray that by your spirit and through your word that you would lead us uh, into wisdom. Lead us uh, to know your will on this issue, uh, that we may honour you. Amen. Uh, this world has had uh, many uh, revolutions uh, over time, but one of the most uh, significant agents of change, one of the most significant revolutions in recent history has been the feminist revolution. Uh, the movement has insisted that non-biological differences between men and women are cultural constructs uh, imposed by a, a male-dominated society. Uh, it's a revolution that has uh, propelled women into all sorts of areas of uh, the world, work, politics, education, arts, you name it. There is much uh, we have gained from this revolution, much we can be thankful for, and in many ways uh, it is the church that has helped lead that change. Uh, but I suspect like uh, all human-inspired revolutions, it ultimately failed to deliver its promises. Uh, the path to self-assertiveness that this feminist movement said was the promised land uh, turned out all too often to be places of sadness and loneliness and exhaustion, just as it is for men. And in the end, I suspect the feminist revolution has uh, maybe changed the ground that we stand on, but left us uh, with no map, uh, left us not knowing what it is to be men and women. And so as Paul writes uh, this letter to uh, the Corinthian church, he does so shaped by another revolution altogether. Uh, it's a revolution that took place just over just one weekend. It's a revolution described in very simple terms in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Let me uh, read a couple of verses from that. This is the revolution that shapes Paul's teaching here. For what I received, I passed on to you of a first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Uh, it is the revolution of the death, burial, resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus and it has changed absolutely everything. Uh, old divisions that uh, so uh, ripped apart cultures, uh, old uh, uh, hatreds and uh, uh, distinctions were changed forever uh, by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But such was the pace of the revolution that his death and resurrection brought around that the community formed by the risen Christ crucified often found it, uh, their heads spinning, uh, trying to tease out the implications of everything that had changed as a result of his death and resurrection. One of the questions that obviously resulted was, what does it mean now that Jesus has died and rose again? What does it mean now for me, a man, and you, a woman? And I think that's what's so helpful about Paul's teaching here. This is teaching in light of that revolution. 
Uh, Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, teaches us here what it means to be men and women in the community of Jesus. And as we look at it just for a few moments, uh, now let me give you two crucial reasons why we must listen very carefully uh, to what Paul says here. Uh, firstly, uh, verse 2, if you look there, the, the words that we are seeing here is not just a, an opinion on the issue of what it means to be men and women in God's community. It is the teaching of an apostle, uh, one called and authorised by the risen Jesus to proclaim that gospel. Uh, these are the words of the king that we each bowed our knee before when we came to him. And secondly, right at the end of our, our passage in verse 16... Uh, We see that while this is a very contentious issue in our culture and even within uh, the Church of England, uh, it need not be uh, within the Christian community. Paul says, after his teaching in these verses, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, uh, nor do the churches of God. He says this is clear. And so as we listen, I I think here essentially is what Paul's going to teach us in one sentence. Uh, The Jesus revolution, that is his death and resurrection, brings about a radical restoration of the nature and purpose of God's very good creation of man and woman. Let me say that again. The Jesus revolution brings about a radical restoration of the nature and purpose of God's very good creation of man and woman. And so let's look, uh, hopefully you can see in the outline that uh, you got there, uh, the principle of male headship that this passage speaks of. At the foundation of uh, this principle of headship is the reality that Paul gives us here that all relationships in creation have headship built into them. Now the key verse here is verse 3 and this is where we'll focus our attention. He says, now I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Uh, The key word is head, it's a Greek word, kephale, Uh, It's a metaphor that we translate as head. And it's worth saying as we look at this passage that some people argue that this word head uh, means source, as in uh, implying the origin of something like the head of a river, uh, rather than the more common meaning, which is head meaning authority over leadership, as in head teacher. Uh, It's worth noting, though, as well, that when kephale is used to refer to people as it is here, Uh, it always carries the idea of authority over in the scriptures. And uh, I think as we look at verse 3 together now, we'll see that uh, in the context of this verse, any other meaning for head makes no sense, especially when we look at the first of these relationships that he speaks of, uh, really the key one, the last one, uh, God the Father is the head of Christ. All throughout the scriptures it is clear that God is Trinity, one God, Uh, Three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, in relationship, uh, equal in dignity, uh, distinct in role. They are a fellowship uh, with clear headship. Uh, All throughout the scriptures, this headship is described for us. We're told in John that the Son does nothing of himself, only what he sees his Father doing. The Father loves the Son and has given all things to him. The Spirit only speaks uh, of what the Son has told him. And one day we're told again in 1 Corinthians 15 that the son who is our king will hand back authority to his father. Uh, It's a fellowship with clear headship and submission expressed in interdependence. Uh, One of the the most wonderful things I uh, learnt while at Bible college was the early church fathers had a word for their relationship, the relationship within the Trinity. It was the word perichoresis. Uh, It means the divine dance. 
Uh, one leads, uh, the other submits. Uh, that's what makes the dance work. Uh, they move together at the father's lead. One leads in love and the other submits in love. Leadership and submission. Uh, that's the shape of this relationship. But it's not the goal of the relationship. Uh, the goal is fellowship. And it is out of that fellowship that God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit act as co-workers in God's great plan in this world. That is to bring life and blessing. Uh, It's often argued, I think, on this issue, not only of women bishops, but the whole area of uh, women in leadership in the church, that to say that the head of a woman is a man is to uh, deny her dignity. But I think uh, as we look at this first relationship in verse 3, that is ruled out altogether. If the son who is equal, uh, who is eternal, uh, who is glorious, is willing in any way to subordinate himself to his father, and he was, and it didn't deny his dignity but actually increased it, uh, why would it damage ours? Uh, Paul will say that the relationship of men and women is to be a reflection of this relationship between the father and the son. The second relationship picked up for us uh, in verse 3 again is that Christ is the head of every man. There is headship and submission within God's relationship to his creation, to his humanity. Christ, of course, leads. He's the head. And he expresses his authority in sacrificial leadership. He gives himself up for the one he leads. And sanctifying leadership, he is committed to what will cause the one he leads to flourish. Uh, Our part in the dance is quite simple. A joyful submission to this one who is utterly committed to our good. And the final relationship picked up in verse 3 is perhaps the contentious one for our 21st century mindset. Man is the head of woman. There is to be headship and submission within humanity. And again, it is intended to be like a dance. And so why is man the head of woman? Well, Paul has already told us in these two relationships. But in the following verses, he fleshes it out for us. Uh, Two key principles are behind this idea of the male headship. Uh, The principle, firstly, of male headship of woman is based on the nature and the purpose of the Trinity. Uh, This relationship of leader and helper that man and woman are to have is not an accident. Uh, It's fashioned after the most wonderfully functioning, joyful relationship ever, our Father, Son and Spirit. God in his love has made us like them, As men and women, he wants us in on what they have. Submission and servant leadership, complementary workers. And that's made clear by the second uh, principle, if you like, that is behind male headship. And that is, as we've already seen in uh, 1 Timothy, and it's said again in uh, verse 8 and 9 of our passage, that it is based on God's very good creation order. This is how God has created us. Verse 8, the woman is the glory of man. Man did not come from woman, but woman from man. A woman, as we read in the Genesis accounts, came out of man's rib, and she came from man because that is the nature that God intended for her. God, in his very good creation, gave woman a nature that meant, in relationship to man, she was his honour. She was created in such a way to bring man honour. And as she honours him, she does so by living out her nature, by being woman. And he delights in that. And so by doing that together, they echo back to God of his creation. Yes, very good. Uh, It's fleshed out even further for us in verse 9. Man is the head of woman because that is the purpose God gave them. Have a look at verse 9. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. 
She's the perfect partner in the dance, uh, leading to this spread of life and blessing. God has given her a nature and also now a purpose that will enable them to work together. She was made for man as his helper. Now, just in case at this point, as Paul has said from 1 Timothy, we misunderstand the the point of the dance as if there are two unequal partners in this dance. Paul makes very clear that that's not the case in verses 11 and 12. There is no sense that men are better than women because, in truth, neither is independent of the other. They need each other. A woman may have come from man, but man is born of woman. And woman has been created for man, but without her, he is dancing alone. Uh, in this glorious work of bringing life and blessing. Man and woman need each other. So there's the, if you like, the principle of headship. Let me just say uh, three brief things by way of implications and then I'll finish uh, with some specific application on the issue of women women bishops. Uh, In terms of implications, uh, I think in a world where relationships between men and women are, are often marked by sort of ugly relationships or disjointed relationships or competitive relationships, God in his creation and now in his recreation through the risen Lord Jesus is calling us to this dance again, a whole new way of being men and women. So three simple implications from that that we've seen in these verses. Uh, It means that a woman ought to live in such a way that she shows she willingly submits to her head. Uh, Paul says that for us in verse 10. Paul puts it this way. uh, The woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. A sign that makes it obvious to others her role in the dance. Uh, For the Corinthians, the obvious sign was head coverings. And some had stopped wearing them. As she was, uh, as you see, all the way through these chapters of 1 Corinthians, she was to play a full and vital role in the life of the church, praying and prophesying and using her gifts, but in such a way that honoured man's headship over her by submitting in this obvious way. Secondly, the implication for man is a man ought to live in a way that shows he is taking seriously his role as head. In the same way that the woman needed to deliberately demonstrate that role, so did he. And so for the Corinthian men, in verse 4, we're told uh, it meant not covering their heads, not living in the church in such a way that demonstrated that they were unwilling to take the role of headship. And finally, the implication that we saw in verses 10 and 11, and that is that when man and woman are playing these roles, they must do it in an interdependent, complementary way before their God. And so as we move towards a close, let me... uh, apply the principle of headship that I think is clear from uh, these passages, especially from verse 3 as we've seen, to this question of women as bishops. What's it going to mean for us as a community, for us as a church? Uh, It won't, I think, mean wearing head coverings. Uh, That was a clear sign of being under headship then, but it is almost meaningless now in our Western world. Uh, But you have the principle behind that that we still need to apply How can we do that? How can we take these equal roles, equal uh, status that we have, but different roles seriously as a church? Now, there are lots of ways and lots of things I think it would be good to explore. But on this specific question of women bishops, let me uh, first apply it generally in the life of the church and then specifically to the question. I think for us as a church, it means this. Our ministry team, both paid and voluntary, uh, should reflect this interdependence of men and women. Uh, But when it comes to eldership, when it comes to headship, uh, teaching with authority, as we've seen in 1 Timothy 2, that's how you lead God's people. Uh, God has given that role in the household to men. Uh, Not all men, 
are but some men and only men. Those set aside for the task, that's their role in the dance. Uh, Which means that no matter how many churches we uh, plant in the coming years, if we are honouring this principle of headship, we will send a man to head up that work. It means that no matter how many services we have on a Sunday, if we are honouring the principle of male headship, we will always have a called and tested man in the pulpit. And uh, it's important to state at this point uh, that this principle has absolutely nothing to do with competence. Uh, This is about God-ordained roles, given his nature and given his creation. And finally, to apply it to this question that is before us of women bishops. Uh, Because I think, talking plainly, if there was ever a situation where we could apply clearly the principle of headship in the church context, this is it. Uh, This is made clear, as we've seen, I think, in 1 Corinthians. But uh, just as we close, uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. And we'll finish here where we have uh, some teaching on the whole idea of judging prophecy, of the words that are spoken in a church. Who has the job of standing in authority over those words, of testing them and judging them and guarding the gospel? Uh, 1 Corinthians 14 is a passage all about how to order church life. And it's not, uh, not an arbitrary order. We're told in verse 33 that it is, again, patterned on who God is. God is a God not of disorder, but peace. God is a God of ordered relationships. And we've seen that in the Trinity, and we see it now in the church. And so let me say, as we look at this, uh, feel the weight of the order outlined in these verses. God is not a pragmatist. He's not saying this will work. Uh, he's, saying, uh, he's saying he is the Lord of heaven and earth. I have created you with a nature and a purpose, and I want you to live that out. And so Paul cites for us uh, the example of the person who weighs words spoken in the church, words of prophecy spoken incidentally by both men and women. And when it comes to the life of the church, words were told in verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 14 are two things that to be ordered and weighed uh, we have some really helpful instruction from him in verses 30 to 33 on what it means to be ordered. But then in these final verses, verses 33 to 36, we see what it means to be weighed and who has that job's job. Now have a look at them with me. Beyond the general weighing all Christians should do with their Bibles open any time the word is taught, there are those who are called upon in the church to the role of eldership, the task of watching uh, the gospel, guarding it, who are to weigh prophecy, not only quietly as we all should, but verbally speaking out against anything that is contrary to the gospel. Uh, Affirming things that are said, yes, but especially with the job of uh, uh, speaking up when anything denies the gospel. And so for those appointed to teach and have authority within the church, people such as myself uh, and ultimately in the local Anglican church, uh, the vicar, Paul, And even beyond that in the wider Anglican church, the structures we have mean that in a diocese like Sheffield, that role is given to the bishop. In fact, specifically in the ordinal, these very instructions that we see here in these verses are given to the bishop. He is to guard against false teaching. He is to ward off these things, just as those who weigh prophecy are to do. And so with that in mind, who should have this job? And we finish with this, 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. Now, very clearly, in the context, women are doing a lot of speaking in these chapters. This is very specifically about this job of weighing prophecy. And when it comes to that job, uh, it is given to men, not women. And not for a cultural reason. 
Uh, we're told here it is because of the law of God, the same law that Paul has spoken of in 1 Corinthians 11, the same law that he spoke of in 1 Timothy 2. It is the creation law, the ordinance that he set down there. And so that needs to be expressed in the way we order our church. And so when it comes to this task of being a bishop, of weighing prophecy, that is given to men, some men, uh, elders set aside for the task. As uh, Paul finishes his teaching here, he says this. He says, uh, any church that does not do this, if a woman speaks in such a role of headship, it is disgraceful. Uh, His words, not mine. It is disgraceful because such a church has ordered itself in a way that disregards God's order. It is right back to Genesis 3. It's right back to saying, God, that's your good order, but we've got a better plan. And as I close, I want to say I feel that acutely. I want to express what I think is the tragedy of this proposal to ordain women as bishops. I love the Anglican Church. I was converted in an Anglican Church. I was discipled in one. Uh, I uh, was ordained with joy as an elder in the Anglican Church. Uh, I didn't become an Anglican because it's a good boat to fish from. I am a convinced Anglican minister. But as our church moves towards the ordination of women as bishops, uh, with this clear teaching... Uh, In our ears, I think we're shrouding ourselves in what Paul calls here disgrace. Uh, I think for too long in the Church of England, we have been worried about ignoring the views of diversity on issues like this and uh, far less worried about ignoring our God's clear and present word. And so my call would be it's time to fear him and not man and trust his good purposes.